Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In this week's episode, we covered Jesse's trial in its entirety. The procedures and the results have raised a lot of questions. So in this week's episode, we're going to be answering your questions and considering your comments about Jesse's trial. And at the end of the episode today, we're going to hear from a special guest, one of the hosts of the Undisclosed podcast, Colin Miller. But before we get to Colin, let's first get to your questions. Okay, we're going to start with this message from Mandy, and she's talking about Detective Watts here and his ability to get, quote, reluctant witnesses to talk. Mandy writes, It just seems to stick out to me. Maybe I'm still stuck in the corruption of Ed Eight's case, but is anyone else thinking internal affairs on this one? They have a detective who is known for magically getting people to talk that is about to take over this case. Wondering what you think about this. Thanks. I absolutely think that Detective Watts needs to be looked at. Now, he's not working for the police department anymore, but I noticed some red flags with Watts before I even got into his notes or trial testimony, just based on some articles that I read. It seems that he's the guy that just always closes his cases. He has a very high close rate on cold cases. So the national average for closing murder cases is somewhere around 62%, and that's with active cases. So Watts is working on cold cases, meaning that the police department has already used all of their resources in order to catch the killers, and they were unable to do so. So when a cold case unit picks up one of these, most avenues of investigation have already been utilized. So the fact that you're able to get a high close rate on cold cases, number one, is a red flag. And secondly, in two of the articles that I read, it stresses that Watts is a master of getting, quote, reluctant witnesses to talk, like you said, Mike. And that, of course, was another red flag. So again, before I looked into any of Watts' investigation into this case, I was immediately concerned by the fact that we have a guy that works on cold cases, seems to have a higher than average close rate on these cold cases, and he closes most of them by getting those reluctant witnesses to talk. It just looks and sounds like a recipe for disaster. And then when we dig into Jesse's case and we see what Watts did throughout the investigation, when I say that I'm referring to Carol talking about the necklace, Carol also talks about the keys that she shouldn't have known about, and the fact that Troy has changed his story over and over again, and also, by the way, admits that he witnessed the attack and lied to the police and wasn't ever charged with anything. 
So to sum that up, Mandy, I don't know if it really answers your question. I know you mentioned something about internal affairs, and like I said, Watts doesn't work for the department anymore. But I really think that Watts's investigation into this case, and really any case that Watts has investigated, should be given a second look. All right, and listener Philip asks, Jesse's defense team sounds inept. Will there be an episode about that? Well, to be honest, I think last week's episode was about that. I mean, there's really not a whole lot more to get into. We walked through the trial, and we've seen the decisions that were made, beginning with the recommendation to go to a bench trial rather than a jury, and then failure to call anyone like Tammy or Shauna, and in my opinion, taking the wrong direction with how they cross-examined Troy. There were a lot of mistakes made. A few people have suggested, though, that Jesse's lawyer might have been, quote, on the take. And I don't think that's the case. I mean, he was scrapping for Jesse throughout the trial. I think it was just a poor strategy. I don't think Miller was intentionally trying to get Jesse convicted at all. But I definitely personally would question his strategy in this case. Okay. And listener Debbie writes, Allegedly, Jesse mentions the keys to Carol, and Carol then tells this to Watts. Watts has no notes or other documentation on this point, yet he testifies to it in trial. This is suspicious. If Carol did know about the keys and did tell Watts, why didn't it come up sooner? How did Carol know if she did know? I find it extremely unlikely that Jesse would tell his mother about the keys because A, Jesse had no idea about them, and B, Jesse didn't have the kind of relationship with his mom that would be conducive to admitting to murder, which is essentially what he would be doing if he told Carol he had returned the keys. Right. Well, this goes along with the question that I answered a couple of minutes ago, that first of all, I don't think that Carol knew anything about those keys, just like she didn't know anything about the necklace. Carol didn't testify about either of those two things. Watts did. Watts said that Carol told him that, but like you mentioned, Watts didn't mention that in his notes at all. And that would be a huge deal. That would be something that the prosecutor would want to know. You'd be sure to document that in your report in order to use that for the arrest warrant affidavit. The fact that the conversation about the keys and the necklace don't appear anywhere in Watts' notes indicate to me that there's just no way that Carol actually knew about either of those things. Okay, while we're on the subject of Carol, Emily writes, what is Carol's alibi for the time of the murder? I don't know, honestly. I mean, Carol says that she was at home watching the news or whatever that morning, but honestly, I don't think it matters. Carol is not a suspect in this murder. I don't think she had anything to do with it. Nothing in the crime scene indicates Carol, or Troy for that matter. I think that the only involvement that Carol has was three years later when she tried to cash in on some reward money. That's my opinion on the matter anyway. All right, and listener LKCS, with both Jesse and Troy's DNA found at the scene, could this be why Troy made a point to say Jesse was wearing his shirt? And we do know now that their DNA wasn't found at the scene, but can we talk about the shirt? Right, exactly. Like you said, neither of their DNA was actually found at the scene. But the fact that Troy told me that Watts told him that both of their DNA was found at the scene and that Jesse was trying to pin the murder on Troy, I think it goes a long way to explain why in every version of Troy's story, Jesse is always wearing his shirt. Now, the shirt has changed over the months and years. It was a white t-shirt, then it was a sweatshirt, and now it's an army shirt. But one thing that has been consistent across every story is the fact that it was Troy's shirt that Jesse was wearing. Even in his most recent interview with me, he says now that Jesse didn't come home for days after the murder, but he was still wearing Troy's shirt. Knowing all of that, I think that we're getting closer to figuring out why exactly Troy flipped on Jesse. I think that Don Watts had him backed into a corner. Watts knew that neither Troy nor Jesse's DNA was found on the scene, and he also knew that Jesse had never even spoken to him, much less tried to point the finger at Troy. But Watts had to get his reluctant witness to talk. 
And the only way that he was able to do that was to make Troy believe that he was in danger of being arrested for this murder. And considering the fact that Troy knows that he didn't commit the murder, that's no easy task. So again, this is another instance where, in my mind, the only place this narrative could have come from would have been from Don Watts himself. Think about it. You have a witness that knows nothing about the murder. And the only lead you have in the murder is Jesse's mom, who clearly wants the reward money, and Watts wants his case closed. So how do you frame a narrative that convinces Troy to say something happened when he knows that it didn't? In my opinion, that's why Watts told him that both of their DNA was on the scene, and that's also why Watts told Troy that Jesse was trying to pin the murder on him, and that's where the element of Jesse wearing Troy's shirt came into the narrative. All right, listener Paul writes, Why did you say Kirby and Kenneth missed it for nine days? He's talking about the situation where they were able to find the keys in the mailbox. He follows up with, Do we know that Kirby had checked the mail before that? Right, I read these tweets from Paul, and I think he went on to say even further that it's important for us to know whether or not Kirby checked the keys on a regular basis. I think he used the example of, in, say, 30 days, if Kirby only checked the keys once, then it's important for us to figure out if this was the first time that Kirby checked the mailbox during that, and it wasn't nine days, it was 11-day period, because if it was the first time he checked it, Paul thinks that it could be an indication that the keys were in there before. And the best answer I can give you, Paul, is we don't know. All we know is that Kenneth said that we check the mail every day for those 11 days. So I have no way of knowing if Kirby checked some days and Kenneth checked others, or if it was mostly Kirby or mostly Kenneth. There's just no way for us to know. I did ask Jesse on the phone yesterday how tall Kenneth was, because I know that Kirby is well over six foot tall. And I know that when I walked up to that mailbox, it was below my nipple line. It was very easy to stare right down into the bottom of the whole mailbox. And Jesse said that Kenneth was, in his estimation, around six foot two. He said he was about his height, definitely over six foot tall. So what we do know is that either Kenneth or Kirby, when they opened that mailbox, would have been staring straight down into the bottom of it. So I think it's a good point, Paul, and a good thought. But again, at this point, we have so many unknowns. For me, and it's just my personal opinion, I'm going to default back to what Kenneth said at trial when he said there is absolutely zero possibility that they had missed the keys. He is convinced with 100% assurity that those keys didn't show up in his mailbox until over a week after the murder. Listener Brandy wants to know, do we know if Kenneth or Kirby had or has ever doubted Jesse's conviction? Well, I spoke with Kirby before we began this case, and he told me he really didn't know much about the trial and wasn't really interested in talking about it. As far as Kenneth is concerned, I asked Jesse yesterday why he turned to Kenneth at the end of the trial and told him that he didn't kill his wife. It was such an odd thing to read. I mean, you can see like an emotional outburst happening, him yelling at his attorney or the prosecutor or the judge. But in the transcripts, we see that all Jesse wanted to do was turn to Kenneth Gove and tell him he did not kill his wife. So I asked Jesse about that yesterday, and he said that it was for a couple of reasons. One is that he knew he couldn't do anything about his conviction, but he said that in his heart he just needed Kenneth Gove to know that he's not the one who did it. And furthermore, he said the way that it played out was Kenneth Gove was actually sitting behind Jesse in court, which is odd because normally the spot for the family is reserved directly behind the DA. But Kenneth was sitting three rows directly behind Jesse. Jesse said when the trial ended, he stood up, the bailiff grabbed his arm, and he and Kenneth made eye contact, and he said that the bailiff let him go and told him to go ahead and say what he wanted to say. And to answer your question, according to Jesse, 
When he told Mr. Gove that he didn't kill his wife, he said that Kenneth looked down at the floor and shook his head and said, I don't know what to think at this point. So now that's coming from Jesse, and nothing that's said in the audience is recorded in the transcript, but I believe Jesse when he told me that story, so I think the answer to your question is, I don't think that Kenneth Gove was convinced that Jesse killed his wife. All right, listener Brooke writes, you've mentioned that Kirby was out of school. The murder occurred in July, so wouldn't the school be a low traffic area in the summer months? Building off that, do you know why the principal ID'd the body? Was he on campus during the summer? Was the campus closed? Would looking into any summer school kids be beneficial? Well, traffic around the school certainly would be lighter in the summertime when school was out, especially around 7 in the morning when normally people would be shuffling into the school. But there are still a lot of houses bordering the property of the school on the north side and the apartment complex on the west side, so there's still a lot of people driving in the neighborhood. As far as the principal is concerned, I don't know if summer school was in session at that time. I haven't been able to find that out so far. But I do know that the principal was working in his office that day. The police reports indicate that the principal came from the school to come out and ID Kiao's body. Now, I don't know if the police went to ask him if he knew who she was, or if he just saw that there was a lot of police cars on the campus grounds, or it could have been that the police just informed him that there was a murder on the grounds. But I do think that it would be beneficial to look into a lot of students, whether they would be summer school students or past students. But as of right now, we don't know if summer school was in session at that time. B asks, if Troy knew the statute of limitations for perjury is long gone, would he come clean? Does he know he couldn't be charged for lying? Honestly, there's just no way that I can answer that. I don't know what Troy is thinking. I definitely think that he's feeling some pressure right now after I stopped and visited him. And according to Jesse, Jesse has told him in letters that the statute of limitations for perjury is long gone. But I don't know whether Troy really knows that it's gone. And I don't know that if he knew that, that he would change his story. There's just no way for me to know that. Okay, and then we have Jennifer asking, if the real attacker's motive was sexual, would we see other violent sexual assaults in the area? Well, we could, but it just depends on the motivation for the attack. So if we're looking at a sexual motivation, which we don't know that that's the case at this point, that's the direction that I'm leaning right now, but let's just say the attack was motivated by a sexual assault. Well, we have to know what motivated that motivation, if that makes any sense. So was this offender looking to attack just anyone, or was it specifically Kiao? Meaning, is it someone who has a particular fetish that, for some reason, wanted to sexually assault someone that day? Or was someone simply obsessed with Kiao herself? And I think that'll be the difference to tell us whether or not we would see other sexual assaults in the neighborhood. Is this a serial offender, or was Kiao picked for a particular reason? Based on the time of day and location where she was attacked, Personally, I think more likely the obsession was with Kiao herself and not just some random sexual assault. All right, and we have one last question here from Lindsay. Lindsay asks us, how is it possible that no one heard anything during Kiao's very dynamic struggle? Is there any reason why she wouldn't be screaming? Also, the witnesses who saw the woman getting forced into a car sounds reasonable, except how is it possible that four grown men couldn't contain one tiny woman? Just don't know. Thoughts? Okay, first let's address the screaming. There was an indication in one of the newspaper reports that the police said in their press release that a neighbor heard a scream, but we don't see that indicated in any of the official reports that we have. But something to consider here is that if Jesse James Wendell and Judy Gonzalez are right, and they saw Keo being abducted where they said they saw her being abducted, then it would make more sense that no one would hear the scream. Because the location where they said the attack happened was up in the northeast corner of the school grounds where there are no houses, no buildings, there's nothing but woods and open field around there. 
and there's no way for anyone from any house to be able to see what's happening. That is in direct contrast to where Kiao's body was found, which was in a wide open field directly across the street from two houses that could see exactly what was going on. And also, they're in much closer proximity, so they would be able to hear much better what was happening. So if we're looking at a scenario where Kiao was screaming when she was first assaulted, but by the time we got down to the location where her body was found, she was in full fight mode and wasn't worried about screaming, all of the pieces of this puzzle start to fall into place. Now, regarding your question about controlling Kiao, what you're saying makes sense, but you have to consider the fact that Kiao had that knife, and I believe that Jim Clementi got it right that we're looking at criminally inexperienced offender or offenders. And so I think it's completely reasonable that four, five, even six grown men would have a hard time containing a woman if she was flailing around a butcher knife, especially if we're looking at 18, 19, 20-year-old kids who have never done anything like this before. They're going to be afraid of that knife. So I don't think it's necessarily the fact that they were unable to control her, but I think it has a lot more to do with they were afraid to control her because they didn't want to get too close to that knife. And again, that's a good point to reference back to the fact that one of Jesse's arrests was when a grown man pulled a knife on him, and Jesse was able to quickly and easily take the weapon and stab the man with his own knife. So again, it's just one more indication that it's absolutely absurd that Jesse is the one that committed this murder. All right, Bob, let's take a break for the ads, and then we'll get to voicemails, and then we'll hear from Colin Miller. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. We've got two voicemails I want to go over today, Bob. The first one's from Crystal in Texas. Good morning, Bob and Mike. This is Crystal calling from Louisville, Texas. And I was just wondering if anybody happened to look into the judge in this case. I'm not sure if it would really make any kind of a difference but it just seems a little absurd that a judge was sentenced to somebody to life in prison with no evidence or the lack of evidence that they had. And I was wondering if by chance you guys have had any other judges take a look at this case to see what their thoughts on it were. So that's all I've got. Love what you guys do. Thanks for all the good work. Take care. All right. Thanks, Crystal. And to answer your question, no, we haven't talked to any other judges yet about their opinion of how Warder handled this case. I did have listener Sarah Sorensen send me a message the other day about Judge Janice Warder. She sent an article from the Dallas Observer, and if you want to look it up, the title of the article is A Devil's Deal in Dallas Court, and the article's from 2007. The article is regarding a murder that occurred in the Dallas area in 1986. At that time, Janice Warder was a DA and not the judge. And the point in this article is highlighting a practice in the Dallas DA's office back in the late 80s and early 90s when Janice Warder was the DA 
where they would give witnesses off-the-books deals in order to testify against a defendant. By off-the-books, what I mean is, Warder would tell a defendant, if you testified to this, this, and this, I'll make sure you're taken care of, in air quotes. Meaning they didn't write out a formal agreement, because if they did that, they would have to disclose it to the defense. But it's very similar to what happened in Ed Eight's case with Kenny Snow, where there was no written agreement, but both Kenny and David Dobbs knew what the deal was. So at this point, we don't know a whole lot about Janice Warder as a judge, but apparently that's how she practiced as a DA. And this is a practice that was later done away with in the Dallas DA's office when Craig Watkins took over. You'll remember Craig Watkins is the DA that started the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas. All right, one more voicemail, Bob, from Lauren in Missouri. Hi, this is Lauren from St. Louis, Missouri. A couple questions that I had was, did Kenneth Williams have brown hair? I know you said they found brown hair, I guess, near on the body that was non-descript. Also, another question I had was, did Detective Watts know the history between Jesse Eldridge and his mom, Carol, as well as the fact that Jesse slept with Troy's girlfriend? Thanks. Bye. Okay, thanks, Lauren, for sending that in. Uh, To answer your first question, no, Kenneth Ray Williams did not have blonde hair. Kenneth Ray Williams was actually African-American. And just a little more on that topic, one thing that was noted by Charles Lynch's trial testimony was that of all the hairs that were found on the blanket and Keow's clothes and her body, none of them were African-American hairs. And as far as Watts and what he knew about the relationship between Carol and Jesse and Jesse and Shauna and Troy and Shauna, we know that Watts knew by trial about the affair with Jesse and Shauna, but he claims that Troy didn't find out about that until after he had written his second affidavit. So according to the official record, Watts didn't know that until after he had the affidavit in hand, but he did know. But I do have to say that personally, I don't believe it. I think that he definitely knew the whole time. Okay, Bob, and another recurring question we've had is, is there anything Jesse can do with the Crime Stoppers tip? Meaning that if Carol was the one who called and she lied about it on the stand, what does that mean for Jesse? Well, I am definitely not an expert in this field, but I know someone who is. For all of you that listened to season one and followed Serial and Undisclosed, you know that Colin Miller is indeed the evidence prof, and he dug deep into the Crime Stoppers information in Adnan's case and in Undisclosed season two case with Joey Watkins. So I gave Colin a call and asked if maybe he could shed some light on this for us. Let me have you real quick, Colin, just kind of give your background or your, you know, your, your introduction of what you do. Sure. I'm a professor and associate dean at the University of South Carolina School of Law. Okay. And then you also blog at the Evidence Prof blog, right? Right. Exactly. All right. So Colin has reviewed all the information we have so far in regards to the Crime Stoppers tip. And uh, I reached out to Colin after going through all of Carol Eldridge's testimony and the information we have with Detective Watts. And Colin has dug into this Crime Stoppers information before with the Anand Syed case. So I have a few questions I wanted to run by him. I thought he'd be one of the best ones to answer it. So if you're ready, Colin, we'll get right into him. All right. Absolutely. The first question I have, because, you know, we, we had the issue with Jesse not being indicted until right before the trial started. And so one of the questions I have for you is, do you know when are Crime Stoppers tips typically paid out and to whom? Right. So that varies by each particular Crime Stoppers. Some it's after arrest. Some it's after a grand jury indictment. Some it's even after conviction. I looked at the current page for the North Texas Crime Stoppers, and currently it looks like it depends on the case. Some 
it's after an arrest, some it's after indictment. And in terms of whom it's paid out to, it is typically the tipster who made that phone call to Crime Stoppers and then gave the information that either led to the arrest or the indictment. Okay, so then in Jesse's case, the story on the record, the official story, is that someone called Crime Stoppers and told Crime Stoppers to get a hold of Carol Eldridge, who then told the police to get a hold of her son, That and all of that ultimately led to Jesse Eldridge's conviction. So if that was the case, then if the tipster that made the initial call, that would be the person that actually would get the money, correct? Not Carol or Troy or anybody else as they went forward? Right. And it would sort of depend on the discretion of that particular police department. So if they thought it was especially useful to be pointed in the direction of Carol, that tipster would get it. But then this is a case where it's the mother of him. And so it's possible that she might have been given the reward money. It just depends on how the police view that particular case. But Usually it's the tipster, but not always. So do you think that in Jesse's case where they waited so long for the indictment, do you think that waiting until the day of the trial, that that would delay the payout process of the tip money? Yeah, well, if the reward was contingent on indictment, it would definitely because they would have to wait for the indictment and then it would be the monthly Crime Stoppers meeting before the person got it. If it only required the arrest, that would again sort of depend on the discretion of the police it would get to the question of why they waited so long to get the indictment, and that might have delayed the Crime Stoppers process. So directly, if it required indictment, there would be a delay, and maybe indirectly, even if it only required arrests, that might still cause a delay. Okay, so we have a couple of hypothetical situations as to how this might have went down. Hypothetically speaking, if that was the case, if, say, Carol was, because, you know, I've told you that I kind of have a theory that I believe that Carol was actually the one who did call Crime Stoppers herself, If that was the case, uh, would there be any legal issues as far as like Brady violations or anything with Carol testifying that she hadn't received any of the reward money, knowing that the reward would be paid out after the trial? Right. And that relates a little bit to the situation we saw in the undisclosed second season case, where actually in Georgia, the way the reward system was set up was that people didn't get the reward until an appeal was finalized in the case after conviction. So that creates the question of what's the obligation of Carol if she got the reward to say she was getting a reward when she couldn't have gotten the reward until after the fact. But beyond Carol, so there's a question of Carol, and it's I would really like to see exactly what she was asked and what she said. But beyond that, the state has an affirmative obligation pursuant to Brady versus Maryland under the Due Process Clause to disclose any material exculpatory evidence to the defense. And so that would be if either the police or the prosecutor knew that she was in line to get a reward in the case, then in that case, that could very well trigger Brady and could have required them to turn over that evidence. Okay, that kind of leads to the next question as if Carol was the tipster, what that could mean for Jesse and the outcome when he's going through his habeas procedures now. Yeah, and so that would be essentially a Brady claim. So Brady, again, is a situation where we have to have a new trial if the state failed to disclose material exculpatory evidence. And from what I've seen of this case and what you've told me, this is a case where really we had what the medical examiner, we had Carol, and we had Troy. And that was it. And so to the extent that we think that Carol was a material witness for the prosecution, her getting a significant monetary reward in the form of Crime Stoppers very well could qualify as Brady evidence that would allow for a new trial. Okay. Now, does it have to be, you said, significant amount? Does does it matter the amount? Wasn't there a case? I thought it was from Texas that you had mentioned during Undisclosed Season 1, or it might have been Georgia or a different state, where it was it was like a $500 or something. It was a very small amount. 
Does the amount matter? Not necessarily, no. That was, yeah, Kyles versus Whitley. It's uh, a Louisiana case, if I'm remembering correctly, that reached the Supreme Court. And, and as you know, it was not a significant financial reward. So that's a factor the court can consider, the, the, the size of the reward, but it doesn't have to be significant necessarily for there to be a Brady violation. Okay. And so the big issue we're looking at here is, was the state aware that she was at least in line to get a reward? Right, exactly. Was that a motivation for her testimony? Was that something where she expected to be paid? Any type of financial motive connected with Carol very well could be the type of impeachment evidence calling the question of her credibility that might undermine her confidence in the jury's verdicts, which would be the, the basis for a Brady violation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, now, and the other question was, you know, we had Carol on the stand insisting that she wasn't the one that called Crime Stoppers, but that her husband had. Now, there's issues with that because of the fact that the police reports clearly indicate it was a female caller. But my question is, if her husband was indeed the tipster and he was paid, would that be the same as Carol being paid since they're a married couple? Or, or would that not relate at all? If, if he didn't testify and he's the one that called and got paid, would it relate at all that the two of them are married? Yeah, there's sort of the formal analysis and the informal. So formally speaking, Texas is a community property state, which would mean that if he got this reward, then that would also be her property. So that's sort of the formal analysis. But really, in terms of a Brady violation, we'd look more at the informal analysis, which is just to say, is this evidence that was important for the jury's consideration and could it have changed the outcome? And that would sort of get to questions such as, did Carol have knowledge that her husband was the tipster, that he was getting the reward? Was that in some way working to her benefit? And you know, likely it would be because it's helping the marital income and their net worth. So it would be really more of the informal analysis to say, if the judge were assessing this, is this something the jury should have known and would it have affected their consideration of the credibility of this material witness? Okay. And, and actually, there's one thing, too, that I don't, I don't think I told you in the summary that I gave you. There actually was no jury in this case. Uh, Jesse had waived his right to a jury trial and had a bench trial. I don't know how that okay. plays into any of this or if it does. It doesn't because there are certain situations, such as when a jury doesn't hear a limiting instruction, where the judge will look at it and say that is different than a situation where it's a bench trial because a judge understands the limited nature of the admissibility of certain evidence. But in terms of a Brady violation, that really doesn't matter because it would either be the jury or the judge who would assess that materiality for the evidence. And that's sort of a factual matter. That's not something where it would matter whether it's a bench trial or a jury trial. Okay. Uh, and then some of the other hypotheticals we were kind of wrestling around with here is if there was indeed a female caller that called and told them to contact Carol, and it's clear from the police notes that Carol was driving the detectives to her son. I mean, the, it, his testimony to, or his statements to police took three months of changes to get to actually nine months by the time he got to his final affidavit to get to the story that he told at trial. So the question is, say Carol had a friend call. You know, they said, why don't you call Crime Stoppers and tell them to get a hold of me in some kind of a deal to split reward money or something like that? How would that play out for Jesse? 
Yeah, if you were to gather evidence on that, it, it seems to me from looking at the Texas case law is that you would apply for a subpoena and that subpoena would seek to compel production of this information from either Crime Stoppers or the police department or the prosecutor's office. So yeah, under the situation you're mentioning, that is certainly something if they had this collusion in this deal where it would bear upon the credibility of Carol and right, you could make this motion to compel production and seek to get information regarding who the tipster was, the substance of the tip, and the nature of the reward. Now, in that case, that wouldn't necessarily be Brady, right? Would it be something other than that as far as a, a habeas claim there? Well, I, if I'm getting the situation correct, this is a situation where you're saying Carol has a friend called Crime Stoppers, so the friend can get the reward and then give some portion of the reward to Carol, right? Right, and then say the state wasn't aware of that. That would be something where the good faith or bad faith of the prosecutor doesn't matter for Brady purposes. It's the simple question of whether it's material exculpatory evidence. And that would be a case where we would have that and we could link it up. There would be a good argument. It's, it's tough to say. I don't think I've ever come across a case like that. That could go either way. I'd have to sort of look into a little bit more because we wouldn't care about its good faith by the prosecution who didn't realize that she was getting some of the money, but it would be exculpatory. So a claim could be made. I'm not sure if it would be accepted by the judge. Do you know, is there any case law in Texas that would give Jesse's defense the right to obtain who the tipster was and to whom the tip was paid out to? Yeah, and this is the nice thing about Texas law, because Texas is really at the forefront of developing this law with regard to crime stoppers. There's this case, Thomas versus State, Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas from 1992. And what it says is, if we have a defendant who believes that there was a crime stoppers reward and it has bearing upon the case, they can make this motion to compel production. And what happens is we have the crime stoppers information going to the judge directly and the judge in private reviews this material. And in essence, you would claim as defense here's our theory of why this evidence is material and exculpatory. And the judge would look through this tip, the tipster, the substance, the reward. And if the judge concludes this might have Brady information, then at that point it goes to the defense. And so they have this screening process that exists where if you have this plausible claim of a Brady violation, it goes to the judge and he reviews the files. Okay. Is that a little bit different than what we were dealing with, with Adnan's case in Maryland? It's different in the sense that Maryland, like many jurisdictions, just doesn't have a well-developed body of law. So Texas is basically either the one jurisdiction or maybe one of a few jurisdictions where they have this procedure in place and they've said, as this situation arises, here's our formula. You tell us why you think there's a Brady violation. We'll review in chambers this Crime Stoppers information. And if we think it's not Brady, that's the end of the matter. But if we think that there's a possible Brady violation there, then we can proceed from there. So it's just nice that they have in Texas this prescribed procedure that says, here's exactly how we establish a Brady violation. So all in all, to be clear, if the Crime Stoppers tip or if any of this information was paid out to anybody that was involved in the case, so in this case, we only had the two witnesses, Troy and Carol Eldridge, that is information that the prosecution should have been required to disclose to the defense, right? Well, that gets sort of the question of Brady, and that's where you have to sort of look at the fact-sensitive nature of the case is how important was Carol to the conviction? How important was Troy to the conviction? And 
that would be the debatable issue here is it seems to me, at least from what you've given me, that Carol's primary function was pointing them to Troy, Troy, who then implicated Jesse. Right. So definitely in that case, if we had Troy getting the reward, that would be Brady material that had to be turned over. The question is, Carol, if she's just sort of facilitating this process and doesn't have any direct evidence against Jesse herself, uh, against Jesse himself, that would be the question of how important she was and how important it is to undermine her credibility. That said, with so few witnesses, every little bit of impeachment is important. So it would somewhat depend, but that would be the question mark is, is essentially how important was this evidence if it was Carol who benefited from her work. All right. Well, Colin, I think that's everything I have for you. I know you're busy. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I want to thank you again for taking the time to look through this stuff for us and coming on and explaining it to everybody. Uh, yeah, sure. No problem. Yep. You have a great day, Colin. Thanks a lot. All right. Yep. Take care. Okay. And that's all we've got for this week's Friday follow-up. Thank you, everybody, for your thoughts and theories. And make sure that you tune in on Sunday where you'll discover some startling new information about what happened after Jesse was convicted. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All of the music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for creating our logo for the Friday follow-ups. Also, thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And thanks to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating and managing our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at TruthAndJusticePod.com. You can send us new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. chummy you've had two days to write that outline it better be hot you know so we're gonna scratch that out mike's gonna start it over mike this is for you you're gonna do it again okay but better so when watts scratch all that go back scratch that actually scratch all that we know that watts scratch that uh scratch that so here's calamilla we'll just drop it in here so scratch that you sign a scratch that last one it seems that he's the scratch that most avenues of investigation have already been... Uh, fuck. I mean, we don't have to really get too much for... A few people, however, have suggested that Jesse's lawyer was on the take or something. Uh, a few people have suggested, though, that... And B, Jesse didn't have the kind of relationship with his mom that would be conductive to admitting to murder. 
conducive to commit. Yeah. Emily writes, what is Carol's alibi for the time? With all that being said, I think it, <clears throat> with all that, with all that, <clears throat> I had what I was going to say and I lost it. Listener Brandy wants to know, do we know if Kenneth or Kirby had, e- would looking in, would looking into any, anyone just to have a sexual, <clears throat> that's wrong, key out herself and not just some random, and not just some random sexual assault. That's why I'm a big fan. No, I'm not. That's why we solid work, Mike. Proud of yourself? I got somebody. <laughs> Some of the best ad reading I've ever heard you do. Well, I felt like you were like in a rut and like I felt bad for you. And I just sat here quietly while you're just like, ah, ah. like it was just horrible. It's a horrible image. Well, thanks for bailing me out. No problem, man. Let me show you how this is done. You will love how good it feels and tastes to cook with. <laughs> no. I promise you'll love it. I'm going to ask you to go <laughs> fuck yourself. Okay, Bob, and another recurring question we've had is... Recurring? Yeah, that's the one. Okay, Bob, and another recurring question we've had is there... Okay, Bob, and another... (laughs) Why don't you try... calm down. Slowing down. All right, ready? Okay, Bob, and another recurring question we've had... Okay, Bob, and another... Okay, Bob, and another recurring... Okay, Bob, and another recurring... Okay, Bob, and another recurring... Okay, Bob. Okay, Bob. Oh, it's getting late. Do it. All right. All you say is, okay. and she lied about it on the stand. And she lied. <laughs> and she. And she. And she lied. Okay. All right. And she lied about it on the stand. <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. <laughs> oh, it's so late. It's hot. Why? It's hot. I know. Yeah. Why are we still. Here. We should be done. <laughs> Taking for. Freaking ever. Someone had to make a fucking airsoft video. <laughs> it was a whole fucking video. Leave that for me so I know where to. Leave it.